Here we go. January 26, 2014, lecture discussion number 140 on the book of Romans. And once again, we'll be moving around uh, between John 12, um, which is uh, the anointing of Christ, uh, John 19, 26 through 27, which is the third saying of Christ from the cross, John 2, which is where uh, Mary is first uh, identified as a woman by Christ at the wedding. We're going to add in a little John 11, which is Lazarus, Zechariah 9, and maybe Zechariah 12, Zechariah 12. And I'll put this on the board really fast. It's this contrast between the, oh, this one's not writing very well. Get him, try him. The Good Shepherd. I have a bunch of them there, but some of them are blanks. And the Idol Shepherd. Sometimes called the foolish shepherd, but uh, usually both. That's Zechariah 11. That is, or 12, I'm sorry, 11 and 12. That is where the, um, the uh, throwing of the 30 pieces of silver is. That is what explains uh, why Judas does it. That explains who Judas is. Judas is clearly one of these two. Uh, and he knows it. So begin to disregard everything that you see from Hollywood about Judas. And along with that, we'll go back into Matthew 5 and then uh, plus uh, John 17 today. Mostly John 17 today. And all of that is necessary to have a, a, at least a basic fundamental grasp of what God is saying from the third saying from his cross during his crucifixion, which, as you know, is, woman, behold... John, your son. Now, I added John in there. He says, woman, behold your son. But uh, to make it so that you understand that son refers to, to John the apostle, I say it this way. Woman, behold John, your son. And he says to John, John, behold your mother, Mary, even though John's mother is standing right there. And again, I added in the names to provide clarification, as many, many people think Christ was referencing himself. He was not. The son in the third saying refers to John the Apostle. When you get that far, many of your Bibles, by the way, uh, the, uh, the people that compiled them recognize that, and they have son in small, uh, with a small s, not capitalized. But I know that many people do not know that, and it's, that becomes critical. And knowing that Christ is referencing uh, the hind of the morning in this fourth saying. So the third saying, he is referencing woman and what that means and assigning the woman to the apostle John and making a mother-son relationship out of them. So I have all of that symbolatry, if you will, and symbolism with two actual literal people there who eventually both of them understand why he put them together. I'm not sure when they did, but obviously the apostle John figured it out very quickly in my in my position, and I'll defend that in a few weeks, I hope. But when you see that the hind of the morning comes after the woman, behold your son, that becomes very important. Knowing that will go a long way towards the meaning of each. At least you'll be starting correctly. Supper Dave was telling me just earlier in the pregame here that he found somebody that was trying to translate the the Aramaic in Psalm 22:1, the Aramaic uh, um, that is in the, the Gospels, he tried to, and I might get this wrong, Dave. He's, my God, my God, why have you spared me? He said. Somebody on the internet apparently recognized that Christ could not be forsaken. Good for him, whoever he is. He recognized that. And so he's trying to figure out why would Christ, God himself, in the flesh, quote Psalm 22.1. So he thought maybe it's something in the Aramaic, and it really means, my God, my God, why have you spared me? Um, well, there's really, God doesn't need to be, he can't be forsaken. And by the way, um, he doesn't need any help. You can't save him. You can't spare him. Neither word, none of those words apply to him. And as if you remember, I said, Christ is always saving somebody from the cross. Everything he says, somebody is, is saved by that. He's, a, he's, 
His salvation, his name means salvation. That's what he's doing. He does not spare me would be self-focus. He does not self-focus. We'll get into I thirst pretty soon. Again, I thirst is not self-focus. If you think that he needs a glass of, of Diet Coke or water, you don't understand him. Um, but uh, but I still, I was just talking to Supper Dave. I was really proud uh, of the, uh, somebody out there that realizes that Psalm 22.1 does not apply to Christ. And he's doing what he can to figure it out. Good for him. But eventually, you guys, anybody that takes this on, is going to place the hind of the morning alongside the woman Mary. Because they're the third and the fourth saying, I have a woman, behold, and I have the hind of the morning. The hind of the morning is a female. And so you'll put those two together. And uh, that's one of the key steps to understand why God is saying what he is saying in the order that he is saying it from the cross. Anyway, that's where we're all headed for those who want to know what the plan is. And also for those who think that I have no plan. Thank you for laughing. Uh, but first, uh, we've got to back up a little bit. Uh, back to John 12, the anointing oil from the second Mary. I call her the second Mary because she is called woman by Christ as well as the first Mary in John 2, which is his mother. Whenever he calls somebody woman, go get all the woman's. It is not a coincidence that both of them are named Mary. What did you think? Everybody in the town is named Mary? There's Marys everywhere. So, we have the, the second Mary, the sister of Martha, brings out this extraordinarily expensive, essentially imported oil from a long way away that she's been saving. And she breaks the container and pours it all over Christ. That's John 12. And Judas attacks and, and the, his, his attack results in the subsequent rebellion of the other apostles where they say, why are we wasting this oil on God? That's effectively what they're saying. This anointing oil, why are we wasting it? So, with all of that in mind, let's now go read John 17, 1 through 15. I've got to read it as fast as I can. I don't have a chance to just explain it as I go through. I'll back up through it. But this is one of the, oh, they're all this way. Um, I can read it to you. You will never really get it until you read it yourself. Uh, there's just so much here. My, my particular translation, and I don't want to pick on the author uh, who did the commentary, uh, but um, uh, so I'll give his initials, John MacArthur, Jr., he has the heading, Christ prays for himself, at John, John 17. Oh, gosh, no, please. He doesn't pray for himself. Again, um, understand what he's doing. We'll get to that in a minute. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So what is Jesus doing? He's lifting up his eyes to heaven and he's speaking these words. Why? Start asking why. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Does the Father know the hour has come? See, I'm already getting off track, not following my notes. Does the Father know the hour is come? Yes. Does he know the Father knows? Yes. Does the Father know that he knows? Yes. Okay, so ask, who doesn't know? That would be us. So I had a, had a wonderful professor years ago that, that I've, I, I've kind of stolen a lot of his stuff. He always said, look for the idiot in the story. That'll be us. <laughs> okay. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's amazing. That your son may glorify you. That's amazing, too. As you have given him authority over all flesh. How much is all? What is authority? How much authority is authority over all flesh? 
How much capacity do you have to have to have the authority to be given the... Never mind, I'm getting off track. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, that <laughs> that is doctrine right there, boys. and That's amazing. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before creation. It says the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given me. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Now just imagine how quickly I'll get off track again. The apostles are listening to this. Do they know any of this? Now... It's true. Is it true at the instant it's being said? Yes. Very complicated what he's saying. But a lot of people will read this and go, this isn't true. These apostles are going to run off like chickens here in a minute. They are not. They don't know who he is. They're they're not keeping any word. They're trying to scrape the oil off the floor and sell it. I mean, I, I don't have exactly the pinnacle of, of, the, of employees. I don't have an employee of the month. Nobody got that far. No plaques for these guys. They're battling over who's the best apostle, who's going to sit at the right hand, who's going to kill everybody. Why don't we blow those people up? That's what they're doing. But that's not how he's describing them, is he? They were yours, you gave them to me, they have kept your word, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Wow, that just slaps universalism right down. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. I'm sorry. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition. You might have accepted, actually. The uh, word is but. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Which scripture, by the way, is going to be fulfilled? He didn't say the scriptures. He's got, he's got a, a distinct one in mind. Which one? None of them is lost ex- but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you that these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the word has hated them because the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil thing. Now that lines up, by the way, with the holy thing in Luke 135, 136. We'll get to that in a minute. It doesn't say evil one. There is no one there. It's not in the text. You, the word or thing can be implied. Really good work was done on that by Henry Morris. You'll find thing in the uh, Old King James. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Okay? Now, I want to, again, just go back over and notice a few things, because we really don't have time to spend on all of that. That's a tremendous amount. What am I spending time on today? Get ahead of me here. What part of that am I after today? I'm after the part that relates to John 12. What part is that? That's the Judas part, or the son of perdition part, right? But now, just I can't just pass them up, because Christ says some very mysterious things in, in this uh, prayer that he is doing. First note that he is speaking, or if you will, if you wish you would use prayer, go ahead. He says prayer. There's nothing wrong with saying that it's a prayer, but it's what? It's aloud. He's praying aloud. Always ask, why does God speak aloud or pray aloud? Does God need to pray aloud? Nope. So if he's praying aloud, there's a reason. And it isn't for himself. Does God need to speak aloud or pray aloud to himself? No, he doesn't. Of course not. So it's noteworthy that the second person of the triune Godhead is praying aloud to the first person of the triune Godhead. And the operative word is aloud. And this, again, this is Psalm 22. This is the fourth saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't need to say that aloud. And it isn't about him. Again, it's about the hind of the morning, which has a relationship to the woman of the third saying. And so the first obvious question is, why isn't, uh, why is he praying aloud? And the second obvious question is, is if I got the first, or the second person of the triune Godhead and the first person of the triune Godhead, what should I be expecting to find somewhere in the text? Yeah, I should be looking for the third person, shouldn't I? Because they have a tendency to do things together. Why is that? They're triune. That's why. The solution to, to those questions is to compare John 17 to Genesis 15, where I have, I have the Holy Spirit and the third person and the second person going through the split animals in Genesis 15 performing the covenant, the burning lamp and the smoking furnace. I have mercy and love and, and judgment making a, an agreement in Genesis 15. And it doesn't seem to have the Father there, but the Father is in a position uh, as well. And you compare John 17 to Genesis 15, and you bring in Matthew 4, and you bring in Gethsemane of Matthew 26, and, and all of that becomes... Uh, a lot more clear. Obviously, it's a monumental assignment. Don't have time today. I've done it in the past. No time today. Just be aware that something great has just been said by the second person and is directed to the first person. Um, and it's said aloud, and it has to be, uh, it, it, it's magnificent. I don't even know what to say. Uh, ultimately, this is the, uh, the mystery of the triunity of God, the Godhead expected to be uh, astonishing. And it is. If you glossed over it really fast, um, then um, make a note to yourself, uh, I have no idea, self, what it is I just read. Go back some other day when you have time and a lunch, a bunch of lunches. Notice once again that he as he always does. He does it always. Whenever he talks, whenever he says something aloud, as clearly as he can, he is always telling you that he is God himself. And that he is equal to and the same as the Father and the Spirit of God. He does it every time he talks. He did it here. It becomes ridiculous how many times he does it. Why does he have to keep doing it over and over and over again? Because we don't seem to get it. Thank Thank ball peen hammer baseball bat it's what he's doing he knows us we are so quick to believe that there's something wrong with Christ um, that, that that I can't explain it. it again it has to be a supernatural event and he is preparing us for the fact that we have that tendency he does he does say he's God with this statement here father the hour has come glorify your son that's him. Glorify me. 
Father, glorify me. What is that? What if I stood in front of you right now and said, Congregation, everyone stand up, ready, glorify me. What am I asking you to do? Actually, I'm not asking you, am I? It's not a, it's not a request, is it? It's a declarative statement. A statement with the implication that what's going to happen. He's saying, Father, glorify me. Glorify the Son. Glorify your Son. And it's declarative. In other words, declarative. The implication is that it's going to be done. So, who gets to say to God? The obvious question. Who can make such a statement to God the Father and have it happen? By the way, how much glory is there? What is the capacity to take the glory, for example? To start thinking about the physics of these kinds of statements. But back to this. Who can tell the Lord God to glorify them? Who has that kind of authority? The hour has come for God the Father to glorify God the Son. That tells you something right there. Only God can be glorified. God is glorified with God. Only God can share glory with God. And he says it over and over again. Together. Glorify me together with you. So your glory and my glory will be together. What do we do? We give glory to God. Uh, can God give glory to us? No, better question. Will God give glory to us? What, let me ask another, uh, even a better question. What would be the consequences if God glorifies a created being? I think ultimately you're going to get to the place where you'll recognize that he, he gives glory and shares glory with himself and to him to, to glorify anyone but himself has serious consequences and he won't do it. But again, how much power is necessary to receive glory that is equal to God's glory? Who can say to God, glorify me and have it not be sin? Only God can do that. And there is Christ saying to you who he is again. I am God. My glory, God's glory, same glory. Together, the Father and the Son, our glory is shared. I share glory with God. Who can say that? Anyway, I can't stay there either. I've got to speed along. Just recognize that, again, John 1, 17, 1 through 5 is magnificent and is Profound truth after profound truth. And we should expect that. That's a great big duh, right? Now, Christ addresses his disciples. Next, the, the men whom the Father gave to the Son. They were the fathers, and he gave them to the Son. They were yours. You gave them to me. That's past tense. Can God take something that is his... And it's and ever have it stop being his. He can do that if he does what? There, I'll do it. I'll do it simply. I can't. Okay, I can. I have the holy dry erase marker. It is in my hand. It was in my hand, and I gave it to my other hand. They were yours. You gave them to me. They're still what? They're still God's. That's how the past tense, that's another demonstration, by the way, that he's who? He's God. That's what he's saying. A little simple past tense is a declaration of his godhood. The son gave the men the words, and the men received the words, and have known and believed that the father sent the son. Now, again, going over that. You have to recognize that he is saying something that we first, on first glance, think hasn't happened yet. But he doesn't speak that way. Why not? Because to speak that way is to speak inside of time. 
All things which the Father gave the Son are from the Father, verse 7. Think about that for again for a while. How much capacity is required to receive all things from the Father? How much is all things? Only God can receive all things that God has. So again, Jesus Christ is telling you over and over again in the first few verses of John 17, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Anytime somebody knocks on your door with a nice suit and tells you nowhere in the Bible does Jesus Christ ever declare himself to be equal to God, that's somebody with absolutely no idea about anything that's in the Scriptures. Nothing. You cannot get more ignorant than that. You can sell books, but you can't get more ignorant. You can sell ignorant books. The people will buy. There's no shortage of buyers for ignorant books about the person of Christ. Again, let's go to verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. He does not. That's very solemn. So ask the obvious question. Why doesn't God, Christ pay, pray for the world? What if Christ did pray for the world? I'll grant the misguided universalism premise. If if God were to pray for the whole world to be saved, then what would happen to the old world? It would all be saved, and it's not going to happen, is it? He just holds you there is no universalism. He doesn't pray for the whole world to be saved. Ask yourself, why not? Because not all will be saved. Why won't all be saved? See, you have, yes, you have, you're now into free will again, aren't you here? Now some will say it's because God is the author of sin, which goes against what we talked about last week, goes against the anointing, goes against everything in the Bible. Isaiah 5.20, every verse in the Bible screams that God has no sin in him. But nonetheless, there are those who say that he does, and that some have been, uh, that you're just all, we're all robots, and he just picks who he wishes, and it's a capricious system. And they all come to church and they all are very happy with it because they, are, they believe they're the ones that, aren't, that are being saved. And the rest of us are, you know, out of luck. Huh? Yeah, that's right. They, they don't necessarily say they're good, but they say they're selected. And they feel good about being selected. And it's too bad for you. I have another word, but I can't use it. <laughs> I'm stunned that I had the... Capacity not to use it. And I'm really tempted to use it, but I won't. You, however, are expecting me to use it, aren't you? Which tells you that you know more about me than I wish. But he does not pray for the world, and that destroys the universalism premise. Then comes something we should expect. All mine are yours and all yours are mine, which is, again, another statement of sameness, but much more than that, it's a statement of infinity. In order to have all that God has, I have to be equal to God in size. So, he is God again. He's saying, I am God. But then here comes John 17:11. I am no longer in the world. When he says, I am no longer in the world, he is no longer in the world. But we might be foolish enough to read that and go, wait a minute, he's standing there and they're all surrounding him. And how can he say he's no longer in the world? That doesn't seem to make sense. How can this be? Why does he say he is no longer in the world at the time he says it? And by the way, that's the central answer or that's central to the question. Time. This is a statement about time. Jesus Christ is discussing time. What he's saying is absolutely true. And he is the only one who can say it because he is saying to you, and he's saying to us, he's saying to everyone, I am outside of time. And to be totally outside of time while you're inside of time makes you who? Makes you God. Makes you the creator of time. You're the one who creates time. And obviously, Christ is the creator of all things. And certainly, time is a created entity, John 1, 3. Now, don't mistake that. Again, Supper Dave gives me sermon ideas. You wonder what I'm doing while you're all singing. Well, I'm writing the sermon. Not, not completely. That's not totally true. I shouldn't say that. I'll get emails on that. <laughs> but 
I have the position that Moses was taken outside of time. Supper Day was telling me about something that I said in 1998 about Moses um, having access to the oral traditions of Adam. That's what I hope I said, but I, I don't. I couldn't recognize what Dave said I said in 1998, and so uh, we have to. I have to hear it again and see what I might have meant. Sometimes I say things that I don't mean, and when you have as many words as I have out there all over the place, something is going to be imprecise. But I have the position that Moses in his 80 days was outside of time and that he was an eyewitness to the things that he wrote about. That's the only thing that is logical to me. And he, uh, I think his, uh, not just, um, the, the words are inspired, but, the, but Moses was given uh, capability. Uh, he had the author standing over his shoulder telling him what to write, essentially. So um, I also think that's the case with John the Apostle and, of course, the Apostle Paul. They, they are still in time, but they are moved around time. Does that make sense? And Christ is not that. He is outside of time, simultaneously, while he seems to us to be inside of time. That is a statement of deity. Christ is doing it with his own authority. I am no longer in the world, he says. Only somebody who can transcend time, who can create time, can say, I am no longer in the world, while to us it appears he is in the world. Does that make sense? That is a declaration of deity again. Over and over and over again, it's what he does. Again, no. this I thought was funny. Now I'm not so sure. I have no time today to talk about this. Yay, four groans and, and, and one person woke up. That's great. Comedy is hard. I, I, I have been attempting all, all just so far today, six pages, and I still haven't got to where I want to get. I want to get to John 17, 11 through 19. Uh, that's where I'm headed, and we're getting close. We're to the second half now. Uh, those whom you have given me, that they may become one as we. Now, some of your Bibles might have the word are. Uh, get rid of those words that are in italics. They destroy sometimes the meaning of the, uh, of the sentence. That they may be one as we. There's a, there's a reference to the triunity again. Jesus is repeating over and over a certain word. Did you get it? I read it to you. Some of you might have read it yourself, but I repeated a word um, 16 times. Right? Not quite, because it didn't go all the way through um, John 17. Had I gone through John 17, I would have repeated it 16 times. I think I repeated it seven or 13 times. What word does he say constantly, over and over and over again? Did you get it? Whenever he does that, you've got to say, whoa. Because again, back to... a. Uh, uh, Dr. Hayes, uh, when you're having trouble figuring out what he's trying to say, look for what he repeats. Find the idiot. That's us. This is what he does. Given. Or gave. Or in the, or gavest if you have the old uh, King James. Over and over again, given, 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 gave, gave, gave. And again, many scholars have counted them and um, all throughout John 17 because they've recognized this just inundation of it, this marinating of it. He just, just constantly, you have given me, uh, for I have given, which you have given. Uh, the hour is uh, given him, given him. Um, those of you, those you have given me, you gave me, I have given them. It's all over the place. He's emphasizing the word given or giving. He's also emphasizing that giving comes from God. And a couple of quick points here. God gives. That's what he does. It's part of who he is. He's a giver. He's not a seller of salvation. He's a giver of salvation. He doesn't ever call himself a seller. But there is a large group of people who are confident as they can be that God is a seller. He's not. He gives. And that means he has to have what? 
In order to give something, I have to have it. So he has to possess what he's giving. So if he gives salvation, it means what? He's got it. That's important to know. Ownership. He has to the willingness to give and the ownership or the ability to give. He has both. Also note that they may be one, be one as we. Who's we? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's your triunity right there. We is not just the first two. And there's no order to them. That's a very bad way of putting it. There's no order. There's no hierarchy. I tell the story that I had somebody get very angry at me and stomp out. Dave was reminding me that in 1998 I was giving lectures uh, that were driving people away. So I have been consistent for 15, 16 years now. And I'm before that. But I actually had somebody just come up to me and say, I'm leaving because she was confident and certain that Christ was inferior to the Father and would remain inferior for all eternity and that the Holy Spirit was inferior to the Father. So there was a hierarchy in the triunity of God. So she separated them. And I made her mad because I said that wasn't true. And it can't be true, because if it is true, there's no salvation. That's a long path to get to that. But uh, anyway, that made her mad, and off she went. And I don't mind people getting mad at me and leaving. I used to take it very personal, uh, but I've changed a lot as I've gotten older. Part of that is, is that I forget who they are really fast now, and so it doesn't affect me as much. And you think that isn't true? That might be. It's not really a joke. Uh, there are some times when I stare. Did I ever tell you the story? I had a good friend married forty years. He he was introducing his wife to a bunch of people. I happened to be there, and he's looking at her, and he can't remember her name. And he was probably in his late fifties. He could not remember, and she knew it right off the bat. And how much help did she give him? None. She let him die a thousand deaths, as he should. And for the next couple of months after that, she wore a name tag, which I thought was profoundly funny. But I never forgot it. And now it's, it happens to me where I go, wow. I and so that is a blessing, by the way, because I, I have to think about these people that hate me now, and I can't remember them, and that's good. Um. Now, now is the conclusion, the part, all of that was the introduction to the part that uh, I I wanted to get to today, which I think is the main part of what he's speaking about. All of that sets up what he's going to say next. Uh, And again, he speaks outside of time here again. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. So he knows, he's saying, I kept them. I lost none. None of them is lost. Even though it seems to us as we read the crucifixion account, we think, well, Peter probably won't make it. Lots of them won't make it. They're scattered all over the place. A lot of them gave up. But he said, I lost none. None of them is lost, but the Son of perdition. That is amazing because he spends, as I said, he spends 11 verses telling you over and over and over again that he's somebody. Who is he? God. So God is saying, I have lost none. So again, an out of time statement that's true, but the son of perdition. Who is he calling the son of perdition? That's Judas. I kept them. None was lost but the son of perdition. And notice that present tense. You gave me, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. You would think it would be was lost. But no, he's outside of time, the creator of time. He is able to do that. To him, the past, the present, the future, is all the same. He's the I am. He's always seeing time simultaneously. We only have a present. 
I'm sorry, we only have a future and a past. We have no present. said that wrong. None of them is lost but the son of perdition. And that is also in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And you might as well go uh, 1 through 11, because that's uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. The son of perdition is also called the man of sin. So he is saying that he lost none but the man of sin. And again, you have to identify who that is. <coughs> Very important. The son of perdition, man of sin, are the same and had contact with, was part of the apostleship or the discipleship of the twelve. Um, and that's the only one that is lost. So ask yourself immediately, why was that one lost and who is he? Um, clearly, Jesus Christ identifies Judas as the son of perdition, and that means that Judas has to also be the man of sin because of Thessalonians 2.3. He's both. Those names, there's three names. We'll get to that in a minute. Those are two of them. And if you add in John 17.15, uh, he is also called, God also calls Judas the evil thing. Or if you prefer, you can leave off the thing correctly and just call him the evil. This is God who says this. Does he know what he's talking about? If you say to me, I do not believe, and I got in a, a one-hour discussion with a very articulate, intelligent pastor uh, on this subject on, got to think about it, Thursday. Went on for quite a while. If you say that Judas is not the son of perdition and Judas is not the man of sin and Judas is not the evil thing, then you are arguing with who? Not me. You are arguing with God. Good luck. And again, the son of perdition and the man of, the, and of sin are one and the same. And here in John 17, 12, Jesus Christ identifies Judas as the man of sin or as the son of perdition and therefore the man of sin and also the evil thing. One is not in the text. Obviously, the, son, or the evil one is not there. The one is not. Obviously, the son of perdition or the evil thing attempted to do what to those who were given to Christ by the Father. What did he attempt to do? Because that's the context. He was trying to... Christ says, I've lost none. The only one that was lost is the one who was trying to do what? So there must be an attempt for the son of perdition or the evil thing to attempt to steal away those whom the Father has given to the Son. That is why I bring up to you John 12. Because that's one of the places the attempt is made. Next obvious question, when did the evil thing make his attempt? That's a repeat of what I just said. Clearly what is being presented or portrayed by Christ himself is where, what scripture that is fulfilled? I asked you, uh, what scripture is fulfilled? He said, I lost none of them except the son of perdition. That the scripture. Which scripture is it? There's a scripture that's got to be fulfilled. I'm going to tell you, those of you who think I don't give answers. It's Genesis 3.15. I have a scripture there. That's a prophecy. It says, the man, it says the son of perdition, the man of sin, who's also called the seed of the serpent, will do something to the seed of the woman. What will he do? He will attack him. And what will, what will be the result of that attack? He will wound him. And then the seed of the woman will attack the seed of the serpent. And what will be the result of that? The seed of the serpent will be fatal, fatally affected. So I will have a wounding and a fatality. That's the scripture he's talking about in the context of attempting to steal. Does that make sense? I hope I did that right. So I have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That is the great prophecy that is Genesis 3.15. To repeat, the seed of the serpent will wound the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will deliver a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent. 
it is not in dispute that the seed of the woman is who? Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. He is the God-man. He is also the holy thing. He is the truth. Okay? And the seed of the serpent is who? If I have a God-man, then I must have a what? I have to have a Satan-man. If I have a holy thing, then I must have a evil thing. And if I have the truth, I must have the lie. And that's just three. But I wanted you to see those three. I want you to start saying the seed of the serpent is the Satan man because the seed of the woman is the God man. So begin. Who is the Satan man? The good shepherd and the idol shepherd also. One is the good shepherd. The other one is the pagan shepherd. It is paganism. It is idol worship to worship the Satan man. Sekar 11. Okay. Again, ask again. When will the evil thing, who is, in John 17, 15, identified by God as Judas, when will the evil thing wound the God-man? Where? Obviously, God gave us a very good clue about when it will happen. So we have to know, when will it happen? Where did it happen? Most have concluded that Christ was wounded where? What's the predominant view? You can shout it out. Don't be... I can have soda while you all shout out your view. Ready? Go. <laughs> Most people think that it happened at the crucifixion. Did you, anybody? Don't ever raise your hand here. Has anybody ever heard that? Good job. Very impressive. But most uh, theologians have concluded that Christ was wounded at the crucifixion. Uh, I, I think there's problems with that. There are other possibilities. Some say Revelation 19. Um, and some say Gethsemane. But, uh, but to solve it, the first thing you have to do to solve Genesis 3.15 is to find wound. What is wound to God? If I wound God, what is he bleeding? What is it when I wound God? How does somebody wound God? I, you know, I get a knife and I stab him once. Is that how I do it? It's God. Remember, God. What does it mean to wound God? I think the only explanation you will have is God is wounded uh, by grief. I think the only thing you can do is cause God to weep. Um, and so when and where does the man of sin, the son of perdition, the seed of the serpent, the Satan man, the evil thing, or the lie. And again, the lie is in Second Thessalonians 2 through 11. When does the lie accomplish this grieving, uh, cause God to grieve? Uh, where does he do it? If you concede, as most do, that it's the crucifixion or Gethsemane, then the identity of the evil thing is beyond obvious now. Because I only have one person who is at Gethsemane, at the crucifixion, is called the man, or the son of perdition, is called the evil thing, and is called the lie. I only have one man who has ever existed to whom all of those things are said. And that's Judas. And one of the people, one of the persons that does it is the Godhead. It's pretty definitive, isn't it? And so that's why when I say, when, when Judas says what he says about Mary and the anointing oil, that is an unbelievable statement. And needs, you need to recognize who you're talking about, who says it. The Satan man can only be Judas, which is exactly as I said that Jesus Christ himself says, 1712 John, 1715 John. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, calls Judas the son of perdition and the evil thing. How much more evidence do you need? Again, God knows, and in all of Scripture, only Judas is called the son of perdition. The Antichrist is also. Well, I would expect that. I will have a Christ, I will have an Antichrist. 
Now, where and when does the seed of the woman strike the seed of the serpent fatally? Where does that happen? When does that happen? That's got to be determined as well. Is it at the death of Judas? Because we're not talking about Satan, by the way. We're talking about the Satan man, the seed of the serpent, not the serpent, the seed. Where is it that Christ, the seed of the woman, fatally delivers a blow to the Satan man or the evil thing or the lie or the Antichrist or the idle shepherd? Where is it that that happens in Scripture? Is it at the death of Judas? And most say no. But then do you see how that weakens the crucifixion argument that the wounding blow was uh, at the crucifixion? Do you see that? The argument that Christ was wounded at the cross? If the death of Judas is not the fatal blow, how is it that the death of Christ is the wounding? And by the way, the death of Christ, was that a failure? Was he wounded? No, that's a triumph. Again, very important to know that when Christ died, Pilate was astonished. Stunned. What do you mean he's dead? The Roman military has spent all day trying to kill him. And we couldn't. We didn't think he would ever die of anything. And now you're telling me he's dead already. How did that happen? He's astonished at the death of Christ. Very important to know that. I submit that you collect everywhere you can that Christ groans or weeps, and in there you will find the wounding. That's where the wounding is. Go get them all. It's not necessarily just in one place. Every time that Christ weeps and groans, he groans at Lazarus' tomb, he, he groans at Gethsemane and weeps at Gethsemane, he weeps over Jerusalem. Go get all the weepings of God, and you will find Genesis 6. You will find the wounding of God, and and then uh, start to place Judas. Is Judas at Gethsemane? Yes, he is. Is Judas? Uh, where is he when Christ is marching? And by the way, uh, just do this really fast. Golgotha, Golgoliatha, the place where the uh, the uh, uh, skull of Goliath is buried. When when David brought the skull of Goliath after he cut it off, I'm not making a very good skull. Sorry. There we go. And they have to bury it. Everyone from Jerusalem came out with rocks and they built a hill. The Romans tore down. It's not there. Don't spend your tourist money. Where they say, ooh, see that hill over there? Give me ten bucks. Doesn't it kind of look like a skull? That's not the hill. They all poured rocks. They built a big hill. And Christ makes the Romans walk up that hill. And then nothing they could do to stop it. He's God. So now find where all of the places where Judas is defeated. And remember that the conflict is between the Christ and the Antichrist, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Satan is not capable of a triunity, only a triad. Satan is distinct from Judas and from the false prophet. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are same, the one. That's very difficult for people to understand. I know that. Okay. Got all of that? Now we can look at John 12. So we're out of time. Remember John 12 really fast. I'll just gloss over it. Judas asked, why was the fragrant anointing oil not sold? You should have sold it. And give the money to the poor. Why don't we give the money to the poor? Why didn't you sell the oil? And Christ answers Judas, who is the evil thing. The holy thing answers the evil thing and says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Burial. And that seems to make no sense. Burial. The evidence suggests that the second Mary woman, Mary woman, was anointing Christ as the sinless king. She says he gets the oil because he has no sinful thought in him ever. Matthew 5. Mary is pouring the fragrant anointing oil over Christ because she recognizes that he's pure good, no sinful thought. He's the only one who can be anointed. He's the only one that has never had a sinful thought. He's the honored one 
That's the tradition. When an honored one comes from a great distance, they're anointed in oil. But she's anointing him because he has pure goodness, no, no sinful thought. And Judas, the evil thing, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Satan man, the seed of the, of the serpent, the lie, the idle shepherd, he says it's a waste. Don't do it. It's wasteful. All the apostles agree. It's a waste. Sell it. He doesn't deserve it. He isn't worthy, essentially. Mary is wrong, is what Judas is saying. And Christ Christ is not sinless, Judas is saying. Not pure good, Judas is saying. Not the Messiah King. Not to be honored as the one who has traveled to us. And Jesus rebukes him. He declares Mary to be correct. Says that not only is she correct, but she's going to be forever memorialized for what she did. But then he adds burial. He says, fragrant. The fragrant anointing is for his burial death. And that's a great mystery, which is where we were last Sunday. So we got all the way to where we were last Sunday so far. Christ's body does not go into corruption or decay. He has no sin. So therefore, he can't corrupt, he can't decay, because that's an evidence of sin. Christ's body cannot be held by death. Death. So all these strips of linen, a hundred pounds of stuff, spices that you, you wrapped him up with, that's what? Seems like... A waste. But it can't be a waste. The custom of the Jews was to wrap the body of the dead with linen strips soaked in spices and alloys. aloes. Think, think paper mache if you want, if that helps you. And, and the Egyptians did something similar for different reasons. Theirs was for preservation. The Jews was to mask uh, putrefaction or putridity. And Christ's, so you know this, the only dead body of all time, the only be- dead body that has ever been a dead body in all of history, in all of time, his is the only body that did not decay. All other dead bodies decay. Adam's body decays. All bodies decay. Not Christ. Christ's body, his dead body, is the only dead body that could not and did not rot, putrefy. And we should expect that. The fragrant oil, the hundred pounds of burial spices, were completely and totally, seemingly, unnecessary. And not, that's not what Christ said. Notice how I said seemingly. They seem to be a waste, but they're not a waste. He wants them for his burial. Key point. Christ makes it overwhelmingly clear. It is what he does. He calls himself God constantly, but he also makes sure that you know that he is singular. He's alone. There's none like him ever in any way. Let me go down the list. His conception is only one conception. His conception is absolutely distinct and alone. His birth is absolutely alone. There's been no birth like him. A couple of you women have just gone through birth. Your birth of your babies were not like the birth of Christ. His life, absolutely alone, not a single sinful thought. His crucifixion process. The Romans had never seen a crucifixion process like that. They didn't think they could kill him. Didn't think he'd ever die. Somehow he died. Stunned him. His death is absolutely alone. No one has ever died like he died. He snuffs out his own life whenever he wants. His burial now is absolutely the only time a burial ever happened like this. No other burial has ever happened like this. His resurrection is alone. He resurrects himself. His ascension is alone. He ascends with his own power. And Pilate got it. Pilate was completely astonished by this. The Romans got it. This is God, they said. Joseph and Nicodemus, they got it. And I just imagine Joseph and Nicodemus, right? They're wrapping up a body that's not decaying. And they've got to ask themselves, what are we doing here? This is the point. He wants them to wrap a body that isn't decaying. That's what he's doing. That's the point. He wanted them to learn. He's teaching them. He's making sure something. What's he making sure? The burial process is saving all, everything he does saves people. That's what he does. That's why he calls himself what? He named himself what? Salvation. Yeshua. Yeah. 
That's my name. That's what I do. I give salvation over and over and over again. I am God. I am salvation. Let's end it there. Rise and be dismissed. Will the musicians please come forward? All of the essential pieces of the process.